Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Turn to our other top story here, and it brings us to the Supreme Court. Oral arguments now underway, a couple of hours uh, now, in Trump versus Anderson. This is the ballot access case, not to be confused with the one about uh, presidential immunity. We're waiting to hear, likely, from the Supreme Court on that as well, but we haven't gotten that far yet. Today is about primary ballot access after he was removed from the ballot by the Colorado Supreme Court. This brings us back to December. This is a case involving the 14th Amendment, and it has to do with whether Donald Trump actually engaged in, and that's the appropriate term to use here, insurrection. Dave Ehrenberg's got his eyes on this from his perch in Florida. The Palm Beach County State Attorney is with us now. And Dave, it's great to see you. It's been it's been a minute. I, I wonder if you can just, first, before we analyze all of this, and we don't need to relitigate what happened on January 6th, I want to understand What are the questions that the justices are trying to ask here, whether in fact, beginning with the big one, whether in fact Donald Trump engaged in insurrection? How do you answer that question? Well, Joe, good to be with you. As expected, the justices are largely avoiding that question. Instead, they're dealing with larger constitutional issues, such as did the framers intend that states would go ahead and do this on their own or would Congress have to pass a law? Is the 14th Amendment self-executing. And although I think in the end they will probably say that the 14th Amendment is self-executing, meaning you don't need Congress to make it happen, uh, there is still Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which says that Congress shall enforce this section. So what I think the court's going to do is they're going to punt and they're going to say, hey, Congress, do your Mm -hmm. job, pass some uniform law so we don't have 50 different states going in 50 different directions. Because even the liberal justices were worried that Colorado, as one state, could decide the election for the whole country, and they didn't want mass Mm -hmm. chaos. So I think, to me, the only question I have is whether this will be a unanimous 9-0 opinion that overturns a Colorado Mm -hmm. Supreme Court case, or will it be 8-1 to with Justice Sotomayor uh, dissenting? Because it seems like even the liberal justices, with the exception of possibly Sotomayor, are going to go along with the majority, the conservatives on this one. Interesting. This uh, this is <laughs> a pretty interesting moment for this court. And I know that the, at least the conventional wisdom is they want to be very careful here. Um, was the 14th Amendment really just about the Civil War, Dave? Because a lot of people seem to think so. Well, it's about preventing insurrectionists from getting into power again. I mean, it was written in response to the Civil War, but then it was not meant just to pertain to that. This was meant to pertain to any traitors in government. They didn't want any future insurrectionists, any traitors to be elected to office, people who were in office at the time um, of an insurrection and then later tried to stay in office. They didn't want those folks. Now, one question, one issue that Trump's lawyers uh, are making is that they want Uh, him to be exempt from the 14th Amendment, because they like to say that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, does not include the president. So what they're trying to say is Mm -hmm. that the framers of the amendment were so worried about having insurrectionists lead the way in our government, except for being president. Like, they could be senators, they can be, uh, they don't want them to be senators, they don't want them to be congressmen, but it's okay 
or an insurrection to be the president. That defies common sense. So I think that argument is a loser for Trump's side. I think ultimately, though, the Supreme Court's going to say, come on, we can't have 50 different states going in 50 different directions. This will be mass chaos. Let Congress establish some uniform set of rules here. If the court, David, has to consider whether Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection, it also has to establish whether January 6th was an insurrection, right? They don't actually have to go into whether Trump engaged in an insurrection. That would be okay. an embarrassing um, review because, look, all the justices in Colorado, even the one trial court judge that ruled for Trump, all agree that he engaged in insurrection. This Supreme Court is not going to tackle that. They're going to avoid it, and they're just going to deal with constitutional issues. Because if they did deal with it, it would get really messy, and they don't have to. They don't like to get their hands dirty where they don't have to. One thing I must add, mm-hmm. Joe, is that I'm a little disturbed that Justice Clarence Thomas not only is sitting on the bench for this case, despite what seems to me as having a conflict because his wife was part of the whole insurrection attempt, but he also asked the very first question from the bench. And so it, it, it just shows you why so many people have a low estimation of the high court. Dick Durbin had called on him, the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, uh, to do that very thing and recuse himself. Uh, by Monday, Dave Ehrenberg, Donald Trump is also expected, and it could come before then, uh, to ask the Supreme Court to rule on this immunity claim. Where do you see that going? Well, yeah, I think he's going to lose there. But the question is, how long will hmm. the Supreme Court take to act? Now, they could just accept the review or accept the petition and then deny the review. Uh, And hopefully that'll happen because that will speed things up and then we can get to the trial before the election. On the other hand, they could sit on it and they could review it and they could make it impossible to try this case before the election. It's all in the hands of the Supreme Court. My best guess is that they don't want to wade into this one much either, especially because the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a very comprehensive, very strong opinion that I think the Supreme Court is just going to defer to. And when that happens, because I think it's a when, I think then it's game on in D.C. and Judge Chutkin is going to move forward with that trial for election interference, perhaps sometime in the late spring. So what's the most likely scenario then, as you just outlined, the Supreme Court decides to not take up the case and just just let it lie where it is in the appeals court, or, or they, in fact, uphold that ruling? Is there a difference? Yes. One is whether they take it up, which is uh, called uh, certiori or cert. Will they grant cert? Mm-hmm. You need four judge justices to grant cert out of the nine. I, I don't think they're going to grant it because of the strength of the lower court ruling, but they could. And then if they do, then there'll be a built-in stay and then we wait for an opinion on the merits, and that would take a lot longer. So a lot depends, not necessarily how they will rule, because I don't think there's a chance in the world they're going to give a president absolute immunity like Trump is seeking. But Trump's strategy really is delay, delay, delay. And if they grant cert and they take a long time to review and make a decision, then Trump will win by losing. Wow. Do you have timeline in mind? I know you must hate being asked that because nobody knows what the heck the Supreme Court's going to do. It can do whatever it wants. But will it be compelled to rule quickly on both of these, 14th Amendment and presidential immunity? Yes, they uh, see what's going on just like the rest of us. They know how important this is to get this done before the election. And I think they want to. I mean, just Chief Justice Roberts 
cares so deeply about the legitimacy of the court. He wants people to buy into the court as an apolitical institution. But if they sit on their hands and delay this thing so that he cannot be tried until after the election, they will look very political. So I think the chief justice is going to make sure this happens sooner than later. And I do believe that the two cases and only two cases involving Trump uh, before will that will be heard before the election uh, will be the D.C. case in front of Judge Chutkin. I think that's the most powerful of the two cases. And then the second case, I think the New York case involving the Stormy Daniels hush money payments will be heard before the election. The other two criminal cases, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which I do believe is the strongest of all the cases, that's got Judge mm. Cannon and she's slow walking that case. That's not going to be heard before the election. And the Fulton County case with all the issues with Fonnie Willis and conflicts and all the complex RICO issues, that's not going to be heard before the election either. Hmm. Amazing. I don't know how you do that off the top of your head still. Great insights from Dave Ehrenberg. Let us know when you're back in the Capitol. Palm Beach County State Attorney with us here on Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington with a lot more straight ahead. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Here we are indeed on both Bloomberg Television and Radio. Thank you so much, as always. And Joe, we were just discussing here on set the idea that so much has happened over the course of just a few days. After months of buildup months it took to actually get the text of the deal that would combine border security with aid Mm -hmm. for U.S. allies. It was launched or released on Sunday, fell apart almost instantly, finally was killed for real last night. (laughs) And then we see, I guess, a resurrection of at least parts of the package that Mm -hmm. were not border security related, now passing cloture on the Senate floor. Well done. That's what just happened. Is that happened. an accurate summary? Yeah, look, the ambassador to Ukraine is in town today. Yeah. Uh, the ambassador, Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., to be clear. We're going to spend some time with her later. Uh, this is a critical moment for Ukraine. We know it's a critical moment mm-hmm. for Israel. No one talks about Taiwan in this bill. Yeah. But apparently the border provisions that Republicans demanded turned out to be the poison pill for Republicans. Right. And that's getting to be hard to decipher. Yes, it is. It is confusing. To the point you raised a few minutes ago, though, as Chuck Schumer just pointed out, the possibility potentially of amendments to this bill. Perhaps well, you could yes. see some border-related measures <laughs> put back also, in after they were somewhat killed. Somewhat comical. Less. Yeah. Yeah. You figure that out. You let us know. Maybe Megan Scully will. Um, look, Megan was just cranking on this story in the newsroom about two minutes ago, the story that you'll read on the terminal and online and is with us now. She uh, helps to run our congressional coverage here at Bloomberg. This is like the hand at the end of the horror movie that comes popping out of the water, <laughs> um, maybe with one limb, another limb missing in this case. Yeah. If, if it passed the procedural vote, does that indicate that it will pass the full Senate? Uh, yes, it most likely will pass the full Senate. Uh, we the overcome the the major hurdle. The issue, though, is what happens in the House. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It needs to pass the House, too. And we've already heard from Speaker Johnson that he will not bring this bill up. They're still clinging in the House, so House Republicans, to their much stricter border language. And they're saying, we're not doing anything on this until we get what we want on the border. What was in the very short-lived deal that we saw Sunday and that was ultimately killed yesterday, uh, 
doesn't go further far enough for them. But it's dead on arrival with Democrats, uh, the Republican language. Yeah. HR2 is yes. what we're talking yes. about, the border bill that they passed months ago that never even got a vote on the Senate floor. Why not just put it up for a vote? and see if it passes, because theoretically it wouldn't get the requisite support of 60 votes in the Senate, right? So why not just call the bluff? Yeah. Well, anytime you put something on the floor, people are taking risks, right? When they, especially in an election year, when they vote. So if you are Kirsten Cinema, for instance, who hasn't yet decided whether she's running for re-election or not, she's from a border state, this is a huge issue in her district, she doesn't want to vote on the Republican-only bill because that then could be used against her as a vote against immigration changes. So I, I think that a lot of that, a lot of this election year politics is what's factoring in here. This is why things don't tend to get done, particularly in presidential election years on Capitol Hill. Steve Daines, who chairs the NRSC, is telling members to vote against this, or was, and I suspect he will again, uh, if this comes to the floor, which we expect that it will, will that end up having a corrosive effect here as he reminds these members they want to run on the border? If you vote for this, and of course we don't know what changes might go into the bill, you're effectively telling people that you're good for this with this money going out the door without securing the border. Yeah, so Steve Daines has a... a, a much different mandate than Mitch right. McConnell, per se. He's trying to protect these Republicans who are running, and immigration is becoming quickly the top issue, particularly in these border states, as our own polling has demonstrated. So what Steve Daines is saying is we don't want to have these candidates in a position where they're making a vote that can come back to haunt them in the general election. Um, if you're Mitch McConnell, you're thinking he's, he's made statements on the floor on an almost daily basis on the need to get money to Ukraine. That is what he is being driven by. As well as, you know, from his standpoint, this is the direction that they need to go in order to keep the Senate in yeah. in November. Mm -hmm. You have different it's it's you have different But that can change votes. Yes. Right? Yes. Oh, sure. If the if and you're running for re-election in, in a swing state mm -hmm. and the chairman of the the Republican committee there is telling you this is not a great yeah. You might listen. Well, and that speaks to what you were talking about earlier not just with Senator Cinema, but if you're Sherrod Brown or John Tester who are in these potentially flippable seats, then it's probably pretty difficult for you to vote against any border related yes, measure. Absolutely. Uh, there's another individual I want to raise here because you talked about Danes who potentially yeah. will encourage people to vote against this. Rand Paul <sighs> is suggesting that this is not something he's going to allow to happen in a quick manner because sure you need 60 votes to pass a bill, but the way the Senate works, you need unanimous consent to do so quickly. Yes. So what kind of timeline realistically are we looking at here if he makes good on that threat? So we're coming up on a two-week recess for the Senate. And as I've said before, the smell of jet fumes is a powerful motivator on Capitol Hill. Uh, my, I'm not making any plans for Saturday. I will say that. I, I think that the, the Senate will be in and working probably that day. Well, keep that in mind. We'll be here too, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Megan Scully, thank you. Great reporting. Help us figure this out as we make our way through it because it's getting to be pretty complicated. Uh, we haven't talked about a, a funding bill either, Kaylee, because well, there's that. three weeks from now, a government shutdown could be starting. Partial. Partial shutdown by the 8th, maybe full shutdown. Yep. I just don't know if this is a crowd that's going to be in the business of writing spending bills between now and then. Well, if you can't pass a bipartisan piece of legislation mm -hmm. that actually was 
pretty much negotiated over the course of months actively versus yeah. spending bills that I'm not really sure anyone's actively working on because we're all focused on this kind of stuff. How are you going to get it together in a couple of weeks with enough How about that? enough support? I have no idea. I, I Look, maybe I'm a skeptic. Let's put that aside for now. Well, and keeping in mind that after next Tuesday, mm -hmm. the margin in the House could be different. Speaker Mike Johnson's already having difficulty getting things done, and yet... Uh, what if Tom Swazi's the next member right. of, the, of the House, which is entirely possible. And the reason why Kaylee points to this uh, is because, we're yeah, we've got an election next week, and there are new numbers out today. This is the first credible poll we've seen on New York 3. Yeah. Uh, it's coming from Siena College. Did you see these numbers? It's I pretty did. close, actually, uh, Kaylee. And Siena is working with Newsday on this. Um, Remember, this is the seat held by George Santos. Tom Swazi in this poll leads Mozzie Pillup by only four points. Yes, 48 to 44. So pretty close to within the margin here. If you're watching on Bloomberg TV or on YouTube, you can see what we're talking about here as we turn uh, to Don Levy for his experience. You know, Don was rated the nation's top pollster by ABC and 538. That is... Uh, Quite a distinction, Don. It's great to have you with us here on Bloomberg. Thank you for joining us. What's going to happen next week in New York 3? Close race. As you point out right now in our poll, we have Tom Swasey, the former congressman, up by four points over Mozzie Pillip, the Republican challenger who has a really engaging biography. And when we start to break this down by, um, you know, where voters think these candidates are going to be better, you have uh, opposite sides of the coin. Um, uh, voters tend to feel as though Mozzie Pillip is better on uh, the issue of immigration, you know, what in New York is called the influx of migrants. Uh, also on uh, taxes, they prefer uh, Pillip to Swazi. But you flip that around, and Swazi has an enormous lead amongst voters on issues like protecting democracy and on the very important mm -hmm. issue in this district of addressing abortion. So voters really have mm -hmm. two different views of these candidates. Right now, a small lead for Swazi. Well, is this then, Don, kind of a litmus test for the wider general election in November when the issues that you just mentioned, border security and the economy on the one hand, the big talking points for Republicans, threats to American democracy and abortion rights, the talking point for Democrats, depending on how New York 3 goes, what issue it turns out came out on top, should we read that straight through to November? I think we're going to absolutely read it that way. Whether that's fair or not, I'm not quite sure, but we're going to read it that mm -hmm. way. Um, I think we have to add another uh, wrinkle to this story is that in this poll, even though these are special election voters, these are people who are going to turn out on a Tuesday in February, we're thinking that turnout will be no more than 25%. Know that this is a district that in a presidential year, this year, we're probably going to be looking at 62 to 65%. Still, we ask these voters, in addition to who are you going to vote for on Tuesday the 13th, if your vote for president was right now, would you vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump? And this district moves nine points in Trump's direction. So instead of a wow. four-point Democratic advantage when we pit Biden against Trump, Trump is five points up in this district amongst these highly motivated special election voters. Hmm. So again, if indeed it turns out that Swazi wins by this four, uh, and to whatever extent there are any exit polls at all, and these very same voters would prefer Trump, that's going to weigh heavily on the national discussion moving forward. Don, we heard every day while George Santos was still in office and there was an effort to have him ousted, 
starting about a day after he got here, that he was ruining the district for Republicans for the foreseeable future. Does this tell us that the people of New York 3rd are forgiving to the Republican Party because they have blamed the man? Well, certainly uh, the voters in New York 3 um, have a very strong Republican base. The Republican Party has a tremendously uh, effective ground game there. Um, Joe Biden is not popular in New York 3. He's about 18 points underwater in his favorability. And some of these issues, taxes, um, protecting uh, New York 3 and New York in general from what is seen in the district as an uncontrollable influx of migrants, um, and also um, the issue of safety and crime in general. These are all issues that have worked in New York in general. You remember that Lee Zeldin uh, came within six points in a, uh, in a, a race for governor right. against our governor, Kathy Hochul, in a state with a two-to-one Democratic advantage. So New York, although um, historically bright blue, um, is starting to uh, trend a little bit towards the purple tone, especially in a place like New York 3. Well, and when we Joe is talking about uh, the the candidates in question here and how it's coming after George Santos, who obviously no longer is in Congress and can't be considered an incumbent here. But when we think about the body of Congress and the view of it, I also noticed you polled voters on the idea that Swazi used to be in Congress. And the question you asked was new energy and new ideas representing us in Congress. Do voters think that's needed? Fifty eight percent said yes. Should that be a warning for all incumbents? Well, it's certainly a warning for Tom Swazi. Uh, Tom Swazi is known in this district. Um, uh, voters, in many cases, a majority feel as though he's had his chance. He was a three-term congressman. Prior to that, he was the county exec in Nassau County. Um, so there is a little bit of, we've seen this guy. Um, now, hmm. at the same time, you know, Tom Swazi has his backers. And when we ask voters about some of the normal work of Congress people, uh, issues that are important in this district, 9-11 relief, um, energy issues, uh, there, uh, the folks in New York 3 see Tom Swazi as being probably more effective than Mozzie Pillow. So there is um, some anti-incumbent, um, and in some ways, Swazi is representing more the incumbent than, of course, is Pillow. Um, but still, there's an under undergirding of strength that Swazi has in the district. He's known. This is a district that felt as though they got blindsided. Mozzie Pillip, although her biography has been really well vetted, has not been front and center around the district. They're debating tonight, the first debate. It's the first time that Swazi and Pillip will appear on the same stage. So there are still some voters who have not been fully introduced to Pillip, um, despite uh, the amount of money that her campaign uh, and to a greater extent Swazi has spent of trying to tell the voters of this district who these candidates are. Swazi says he's a common sense uh, problem solver who's going to go do the work of this district in Congress. Uh, the district knows him. Masi Pillip is an unknown person, uh, an engaging biography, uh, and rides this wave of, of anti-Biden sentiment, of concern over crime, concern over migrants. Yeah. It's going to be a close election that's going to come down to turnout. In our poll, we have the turnout being equal percentages of Democrats and Republicans. We do that because mm -hmm. we anticipate that Republican ground game really getting Republicans out. If this turnout looked like an election year, in an election year, the Democrats have a 10 to 11 point advantage in turnout. So Thomas Wazi has already said, if he were not to prevail in the special, he's gonna run again in November. 
uh, an election year turnout, he might have a better opportunity than he has this coming Tuesday. Still very close, four-point lead for Swazi. All right, we're, we brought you the authority here from Siena <laughs> College. He's the director of Siena's Research Institute, Don Levy. Great to have you, Don. This sounds like an awfully important debate tonight, and we appreciate you sharing your work with us here on Bloomberg. Don't be a stranger. I want to hear from Don next time they do a, next, Absolutely. a big poll on the presidential race, which will be uh, later on this month. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines on The Fastest Show in Politics. Thanks for being with us on the radio, on YouTube, and on TV. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Joe and I indeed are live on both Bloomberg TV and radio in Washington when there has been a lot to discuss over recent days. But something, Joe, we should note as well. Mm is the issue of the Congressman Matt Rosendale, who apparently is jumping into the Montana Senate race, one that could be one of the most closely watched in 2024 because the incumbent Democrat, Mm -hmm. John Tester, could be vulnerable, but you get a Republican actual primary contest, maybe things look different. And we all woke up this morning to news that the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, might be endorsing Rosendale for the job, and then he pulled it. Uh, This is really funny. if you if you like the backroom yeah. uh, drama here, Mitch McConnell, uh, the Senate Leadership Fund had gone with a different candidate here. Right. So you wonder if Mike Johnson was poking Mitch McConnell in the eye or what the whole point of this was. Well, there's certainly been a lot of poking between the two chambers going on in recent Fair days. Enough. We know that to be sure. But actually, the congressman, Rosendale, weighed in on X just a few minutes ago saying, Speaker Johnson and I have always had a great relationship. I am thankful for his continued support going on to say Mitch McConnell and the D.C. cartel are terrified about me going to the U.S. Senate. They know they can't control me. They know I won't vote for McConnell as leader. Unbelievable. So there's the latest on that. Rick Davis must have thoughts on this. I'm he sure he us does. Now. Republican strategist who's been in the throes of uh, a lot of back and forth in the Senate. Of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor. What do you make of this, Rick? What is Speaker Mike Johnson doing? Well, uh, Mike Johnson is kowtowing to Donald Trump, which we've seen a lot of lately. Uh, there's no other mm-hmm. explanation for him to get involved in a Senate primary as Speaker of the House uh, than if he's just towing someone else's uh, load. Uh, the reality is Mitch McConnell and the entire Republican caucus need two seats. They need Tester's seat, this race, and they need West Virginia, which is almost a foregone conclusion. So the Tester race is probably the most important race in America for Mitch McConnell and the Republicans to regain a majority. And they went out of their way to recruit Tim Shee to be that candidate, knowing after the 2022 elections that candidates matter. And those candidates that Donald Trump hand-selected, like Rosendale, uh, lost mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Democrats. And so this was the hope that they could get competitive candidates to be uh, in these seats. And this this <laughs> Rosendale's continued persistence uh, in the primary just ties up the race, uh, expends needed resources for a general election, and frankly, is a lifeline to Democratic tester. So uh, it it made no sense why he would stick his nose into it. It makes a lot of sense why the speaker got his nose punched and went back into his um, <laughs> turf. And and wow. so now we'll see whether or not Rosendale can mount any kind of real significant challenge against Sheehy. 
Amazing. Okay, so maybe the speaker shouldn't have cared as much about this race or been as vocal uh, about that. But Rick, we know that he definitely cares about the race that's ongoing right now in the third district of New York. We were just speaking to Don Levy of Siena College about this because there is that special election to replace George Santos, who was kicked out of the House of Representatives coming up quickly next week. When we're talking about a speaker in Mike Johnson who already has had great difficulty getting anything done, including the impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary attempted earlier this week and the Israel aid standalone package that also was attempted and failed earlier this week. What changes for him if this seat flips to the Democrat? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's like the nightmare scenario. Uh, uh, it, we, he started with the, the smallest margin in the history of a, a, a major party um, uh, control of the House. And it's only gotten smaller since he's uh, been elected speaker, which hasn't been for that long. So it's it's a disaster. Uh, Democrats see this as just another opportunity to to hold things up in the in the House. Uh, they're on defense, uh, uh, and and frankly, Republicans, if they lose another um, uh, seat like this one, uh, they're they're going to be on defense too, and nothing's going to get done. And and it really does portend, as Joe and you mentioned earlier. A, a real crisis potentially with the funding of government, because uh, right now there's no plan publicly uh, announced by the speaker on how he's going to actually knit together, you know, s- some vehicle that allows the government to be funded. Uh, and, and and certainly not before the deadlines that he self-imposed on uh, these CRs, uh, continuing resolutions. And so um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a very big problem coming up. I know we've all been focused on the supplemental and the immigration package, and those are incredibly important. But nothing is more important than funding the government. You've been of the mind that they can pull this out of the fire here, Rick. Are you starting to get concerned because we've got a recess coming and not a lot of time to write these spending bills? Yeah, trying to legislate like this in an election year is crazy, right? I mean, speakers and leaders in the past say, you know, like we got to get all our work done on time in an election year for president because nothing ever happens in the election year. It's just too political. And we saw just that happen, you know, with with this uh, immigration package. I mean, Republicans demand an immigration package. They get one and then they have to vote against it. Makes them look foolish. Uh, Republicans extend the the, the budget until you know, the first quarter of this year, and now they're going to have a hard time finding the votes for it. It is a no-brainer to package together these appropriations bills and pass the budget. They are they were supposed to have done that by September 30th, and they have been just kicking the can ever since then. They have a top-line negotiated agreement, so the hard part of knowing how much you're going to spend has already been done. And the fact that you then apply that to each of these appropriations bills is not that hard a task. Uh, but we just don't see the committees doing the work to get those things passed. Uh, maybe it all gets thrown into an omnibus. That would be certainly an easy way to get it done on time. Uh, I say on time at this time. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and and maybe this is what the speaker's, maybe even his last act will be to fund the government. Uh, that would be saying something after he's only been the speaker for 100 or so days and by mid-March will be at what maybe 150 you know be shorter limbs than this, Kevin McCarthy this prospect is it going to be a state of the union or is it going to be a state of the union without speaker Johnson standing behind sitting behind Joe Biden can the state of the union even go on if the government has partially shut? There are great great questions here I guess Congress keeps doing its work right uh, not necessarily hmm. if they're not in session in fact, I think Rick was encouraging Joe Biden to do the speech from the White House. Am I right, Rick? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the president does not actually have to be in the well of the House of Representatives to give the State of the Union. In fact, they used to just send over a memo and never even did the speech. <laughs> so uh, the reality is, mm -hmm. if, 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 if his political uh, uh, campaign prevails, they would say, absolutely, you got to talk about the State of the Union because it's messed up. And without your leadership, it's not mm -hmm. going to get any better. And so show leadership by giving the speech, sitting in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk, and convince Americans that you are the only one who are keeping the lights on right now. Well, Donald Trump would probably beg to differ on that argument. And it raises the, the question for me, Rick. We just saw what Trump was able, even if it wasn't entirely due to his thumb on the scale, his influence perhaps in members of the House and how that ultimately proved enough to kill this border deal entirely. He used to be suggesting back with we were dealing with continuing resolutions about to expire twice before this, that <laughs> Republicans shouldn't be fearing a government shutdown. Could it, the whether or not it happens actually come down to whether or not the former president gives his blessing for it to happen? Well, we've seen him uh, meddle in the House business this week. So uh, sure, uh, that yeah. could have an influence on it. Although we haven't heard that from any of the leadership or even the rabble rouses in the Freedom Caucus lately, that they actually mm -hmm. want the, the government to shut down. I mean, that that conversation uh, was really more germane, you know, at the end of last year. Uh, we haven't seen people actually think that's a good strategy right now. So the hope is that nobody actually believes that it's somehow their political advantage to shut the government down and that they do find a resolution to this or what happens uh, in, in these cases, a, a year long continuing resolution gets thrown on the floor and voted on. That actually results in a budget cut based on the top line numbers that they'd already agreed to. But it also hurts the Defense Department at a time when we're in conflicts all around the world. And, uh, you know, I sure wouldn't want to be a Republican leader who has to go back to his district and explain to people that I was just party to a huge cut in defense spending at a time when our security is in jeopardy. Rick Davis, we thank you as always, Rick. Thanks for the analysis and the clutch uh, insights here as this bill clears a procedural hurdle uh, in the Senate to fund Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Rick was with us a bit earlier when this happened, mm -hmm. uh, and it looks like it could pass the full House here. Kaylee, this is important. It happened uh, just a short time ago, teeing up a floor vote yeah. sooner than later. So it could pass potentially the full Senate, yeah. given the, the tally that we, we've seen in the the test measure today, if mm -hmm. you will. The House, though, is a massive question. For everything we were just discussing with Rick, this is a speaker who has proven to have great difficulty exercising control over his conference and also still has the motion to vacate potentially hanging over his yep, head with every right. decision he makes. And there's members like Marjorie Taylor Greene who have said, yes, we will bring that if you put Ukraine aid on the floor of this chamber. Indeed. Uh, it was only two days ago, by the way, a standalone Israel funding right. bill in the House failed. So... Uh, let's In wait to see fashion. what happens because we simply can't predict it. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.